Hi FM, your station of choice since 2008. Welcome to Soul to Soul, right here on 101.9 Hi FM. I'm your host Rabbi Ari Kiban. Great to be with you here this afternoon, and we are just a week away from the upcoming holiday of Shavuos. Now, Shavuos might be a short holiday without many ceremonial rituals. It doesn't have Pesach retreat, although stay tuned. Maybe in the near future, we'll offer you a Shavuos retreat. And certainly we don't have a giant menorah lighting. It's not the same as other holidays. Yes, I know cheesecake is delicious, but doesn't quite make the same cut. But it is, in its own way, the most important Jewish holiday of the year. It's not just because I was born on Shavuos, but rather because you, the entire Jewish nation, was born on this holiday. Shavuos is the birth of the Jewish people. It's the day that God gave us the Torah. And if not for that, where would we be today? If not for Shavuos, there would be no Pesach, and no Hanukkah, and no High Holidays, and no Purim. We would have no shofar, no matzah, no Shabbos, and no shul. We'd have to just, we'd just, you know, be, who would we be even? Like the Gemara says, Ilav Hayomaf, not for that day, Kama Yossi Hava Bashuka, how many Yossis there would be in the shuk, in the marketplace. We'd have no Jewish past and no Jewish future, no heritage, no destiny. This holiday, Shavuos, celebrates the foundation of all of Judaism. And therefore, I think it's important that we take some time to familiarize ourselves with the events and the impact of this day. So let's begin with the events that led to the giving of the Torah at Mount Sinai. Six weeks after their exodus, the emancipation from slavery in Egypt, our ancestors arrived at Sinai. This had been a tumultuous six weeks. First, we remember seven days after the exodus was the splitting of this Sea of Reeds and all the trauma and anxiety and of course the gratitude and excitement that it entailed. And three weeks later, our ancestors ran out of provisions. God began to deliver their daily portion of manna from heaven. They ran out of water. God performed a fresh water spring that God offered them this miraculous oasis in the desert in the form of a rock that would travel with them for the next 40 years. And this was followed by a brief but fierce skirmish with the tribe of Amalek who attacked the Jewish people unprovoked. And after their triumph, our ancestors arrived finally at Sinai on the first day of the month of Sivan, which reminds me that Rosh Chodesh Sivan will be on Tuesday, Monday night, Tuesday, this coming week, the 31st of May. And that will be the day to celebrate their arrival at Sinai. Now, on the second day of Sivan, this year commemorated on this coming Wednesday, Moshe climbed Mount Sinai and God informed him that he had chosen the Jewish people as Mamleches Kohanim Vegoy Kadosh, as a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. God offered to give them the Torah. Moshe descended, relayed the offer to the Jewish people, and we quickly accepted. We said the words, Na'asa Venishma. 
We will do, and then we'll hear. This was without questioning, blind faith acceptance. The next morning, Moshe climbed Mount Sinai and relayed the nation's consent to God. God proclaimed that he would appear on Mount Sinai and the nation would hear God intone the commandments to Moshe. Moshe came back, he reported this to the nation, but the people asked Moshe to return to God and to ask him to speak, that Hashem should speak directly to the people rather than through Moshe as an intermediary. Then on the fourth day of Sivan, Moshe climbed the mountain again and relayed this request. God agreed with the condition that the nation prepare for two days. And now we have what's called the Shloshes Shimei Hagbala, the three days of preparation. And that begins from Thursday, Friday, and this year on Shabbos, which of course will add to the enhancement of the holiday, the festivities this year. Now, of course, as with everything Jewish, there are different opinions. The Gemara offers two perspectives on this. The Shita of Rabbi Yossi is that Moshe Rabbeinu added a day on his own and Hashem agreed. According to others, Matan Torah may have occurred even on the seventh of Sivan. This is, of course, discussed in the Talmud because all we know without a specific date that God gave us the Torah, unlike any other holiday which has a specific date in the Torah, Shavuos doesn't. Shavuos is the 50th day after the exodus from Egypt. So it was early in the morning, God appeared on the mountain with all the flaming fires and the thunderous sound and this unending crescendo of a shofar's blast was heard and the nation fell back in fright. Moshe Rabbeinu Moses urged them to move forward and they formed ranks around the mountain. As the Torah describes, God descended and intoned the commandments, the Ten Commandments, beginning with the very first one, Anoichi Hashem Alekecha, I am the Lord your God. Now, the Jews were not the only people that received an offer for the Torah, according to the Medrash. In fact, we were the last ones to receive the offer. Only after it was refused by every other nation did God present it to us. Thus says the Medrash, it's a beautiful song from my childhood from the great Yiddish composer, singer Yom Tevarlech, and beautifully sung by Avram Fried in more recent years. The story, as the Medrash puts it, that when God offered to give the Torah, God first offered it to the various nations of the world. And each nation asked what's written in it. And when they're told not to murder, not to steal, not to commit adultery, etc., etc., they each rejected it. Whereas when God came to the Jewish people, God asked us, would you like to receive the Torah? And of course, the people said, how much? God said, free. They said, we'll take two tablets. Of course, that's the good old joke. But with God offering the Torah to each nation and each one inquiring what's written in it, when God said to one, you should not steal, they said, theft? What do you mean? That's the way we conduct business. We can't accept the Torah. 
And there was no nation that God did not approach to ask if they wanted the Torah. Each one had another reason why it didn't suit them. There's a anecdote they relate about negotiations between the union members and their employer were just at an impasse. And the union decided that their workers were abusing their contract sick leave provisions. They said, that's it. And one morning at the bargaining table, the company's chief negotiator, he held aloft the morning edition of the newspaper. This man, he said, called in sick yesterday. There he is on the sports page. And he shows everybody a photo of this supposedly ill employee who had just won a local golf tournament with an excellent score. So the union negotiator broke the silence in the room. Wow, just think of what kind of score he could have had if he wasn't sick. Of course, after having solicited every other nation, God went to the Jews and their response was immediate. They didn't ask whether what was in it or as the other nations did. They simply said, and very succinctly, whatever God says, nah, seven Ishma, we will do, we will hear, we will do, came first and only then, Venishma, indicating that they would accept whatever God said, even without knowing what the request would be. So certainly, that shows a very profound commitment. And on a deeper level, the word nishma means to understand, to appreciate. So they were committing to observe the mitzvahs, whether they understood, whether they appreciated them or not. That was the depth, the profundity of the Jewish people's acceptance. Why did our ancestors accept a blinding, life-altering document without even checking what was in it? If someone asked you to commit to some kind of contractual agreement for a lifetime of service that would cover every facet of your life in intricate detail, as you know the Torah does, would you accept it without reading the contract? Would you just say, Nasa Vanishma, I accept, no problem? No lawyer in his right mind would advise you to accept such a deal. Yet our ancestors did exactly that. They, in fact, they, we, hold up their acceptance as an example of virtue ever since. Now, certainly the Gemara says that our ancestors also accepted the Torah. And maybe in that sense, we do many facets of the Torah because the Gemara tells us that Avraham Avinu kept all the mitzvahs, including even rabbinic commandments, such as Erev Tafshilim. And according to this, the question becomes, if they had the Torah anyway, why do they need Matan Torah? Why do they need God to give them the Torah? Now, if anything, they lost out. Before Matan Torah, mitzvahs were optional. Now they became obligatory. And now uh, infractions would, be, would become punishable. Why would they enter into an agreement that appeared to offer no new benefits? Of course, in a sense, you could say only drawbacks. And the answer is the same as the one that we will discuss today. The idea that, of course, by their commitment, blindly call it in that sense, this was showing, this was demonstrating and illustrating 
our ancestors' commitment to God that was unflinching. And of course, this is something that stands us by today. So we are the ones who continue that legacy as our ancestors did back then. In a sense, our sages tell us every soul, every Jewish soul that was destined to be was present there and accepted this offer from God. You know, when you fly in an airplane and the pilot wants to make an announcement, he always starts, you know, ladies and gentlemen, this is your captain speaking. They don't begin with the words, I am your captain. So God, though, is different. God starts the Ten Commandments with, I am God, your God. It doesn't start off, this is your God speaking. The word, the word I conveys our very essence can't be captured in a word of picture. It's not broad or tall or beautiful or bold, fat or slim, fit or trim. Adjectives that could describe our outer elements. The I, it's my quintessence, cannot be described or defined. It's just me. And in that sense, at my core, there's only me. No one else exists in that place. It's my space where I get to be me without regard for others. We each have a space like that and we guard it jealously. We don't share it with others or let anyone else in. We interact with others from an external space where we adapt ourselves to the interests and sometimes the demands of others. Our friends interact with our social selves. Our family interacts with our emotional selves. Our teachers interact with our intellectual selves. Our colleagues interact with our professional selves. None of these are the true us. The person who's social, the person who's intellectual, the person who's emotional, the person that doesn't come out, shouldn't come out. That is where we get to be ourselves. And from that safe space, we emerge to interact with others. So when God introduced himself to us at Mount Sinai, he didn't introduce himself by a title or a name. He didn't reveal an external aspect or an extension of himself. He showed us his very self to be, to be sure he also showed us his glory, his grandeur, his beauty. But those were secondary. His first introduction was Anochi. Hello everyone, this is me, the real me. The real, unadulterated, unmitigated, unadorned me. Now, of course, after God said Anochi, said Hashem Alekech. There's Hashem, which is a higher, greater level of God's essence, of, of God's revelation. And then came Alekech, which is the next level. Why did God share a part of himself that no one ever shares the very deepest quintessential essence? And so we will discuss this. And I would like to point out that there's one person in life with whom we share our very essence, whom we invite into our most private and sacred space. And who is that? Of course, it's our spouse. So think about that. Why is a wedding such a happy occasion? You know, after all, a man and a woman who would have perfectly free their entire lives are about to throw away their independence and become indentured to each other. Why is that so exciting? Why are we celebrating? And the answer, of course, is that they're not throwing away their freedom. They are establishing a connection. There are many types of relationships, but none of them can compare to the depth and grandeur of a marriage. So when we have relationships with others, whether it's our students, our teachers, our friends, our family, 
They're, they're all relationships, but none are invited into our deepest, most sacred spaces. Every social bond has its limits. If someone tries to explore too much, if they ask questions that are too personal, if they invade our sacred space, we put up boundaries, we don't let them in. The only difference is a spouse. Our spouse is invited into our deepest, most intimate selves. That space that we kept jealously hidden for years, the circle that was closed to everyone, reserved only to ourselves, we opened that up to one and only one person in the entire world. We invite our spouse to touch us in this essence-to-essence relationship. You know how they say in, in a marriage, man and woman become one. The problem begins when they try to figure out which one. Of course, a wedding is joyous because two people invite each other into their very essence. Such an invitation by the person we love is overwhelming. It's it's humbling. It's joy-inspiring. It's something to be cherished for a lifetime. Friends and family rejoice because the bride and groom, the chassan and kala, have exchanged their quintessential gift of a lifetime. So let's go back to Mount Sinai, my friends. Our sages taught that the day that we received the Torah at Mount Sinai was like a betrothal. When God opened with the words, Anoichi Hashem Alekecha, I am Hashem your God, Hashem was talking to every Jewish person individually. God was offering a personal relationship with us. Hashem said, I want to be your God, as a man would say to a woman, I want to be your husband. God was offering a relationship his hand in marriage, as it were. He was saying, I want to be your God. Would you like to be my people? As husband and wife share their very essence with each other, God offered to share his very essence with us. This is me speaking, Hashem said. My very self with no veil or curtain to hide behind. I want to place myself in your hands. I want to trust you with my most vulnerable, intimate, and private treasure myself. Are you willing to have me? And our answer is, was. Nasavarishma, yes, of course. We want to be your people. If this is a proposal, we accept. And indeed, five weeks earlier, standing there by the Sea of Reeds, the Jewish people have already expressed the great desire for a personal relationship with God because they said, Zach Kaley, this is my God. We say it in the Az Yashar prayer every day. They didn't say this is our God. They said, Zach Kaley, this is my God. Each Jew desired a personal relationship with Hashem. And it is therefore not surprising that when God asked for our hand in marriage, the Jewish people accepted. Our ancestors were thrilled by this offer. They cherished it. They accepted it immediately. And we'll be right back after these messages. IFM 101.9 megahertz of life. Welcome back to Soul to Soul right here on 101.9. Hi FM, I'm your host, Rabbi Ari Kievman. And ladies and gentlemen, we have been discussing Shavuos. And let's go back to our question that we asked earlier. Why our ancestors accepted a lifetime contract of service without even reading the contract? Now, if we're honest about it, we will acknowledge that most of us in our personal lives do exactly what our ancestors did as a nation. We enter lifelong agreements 
and we're happy to do it. I'm sure you realize I'm talking about marriage. If you think about it, marriage is the same kind of arrangement. When we get married, we have no idea what type of requests or expectations our spouses might have, even if we know each other very well before we marry. There are certain parts of our personality that really don't surface until after marriage. Moreover, we know that we change over time. We expect that our spouse's desires will likely change as well. Yet, the very definition of marriage is that no matter what our spouse might need, we are committed to provide it. It's a lifetime contractual agreement of service that we are happy to take on. Why? What's this about? Because marriage is not a commitment to a service. It's a connection with a person because they are touched at the core by each other's core. Husband and wife don't see doing things for each other as a burden, but as an opportunity to make each other happy. The greatest gift you can give to the person who loves you is the chance to make you happy. The greatest gift they can give in return is to do something they don't necessarily want to do, but they're doing it just to make you happy. Marriage is not a, a sentence that robs us of our freedom. It's a platform that grants us the deepest form of freedom, the freedom to touch another on the deepest, most intimate level and to be touched by another on the deepest level. When we ask a stranger for a favor, the stranger is usually focused on the favor. So indeed, it could be a burden for the stranger. When we ask our spouse for a favor, our spouse is focused on us. If it's a true loving relationship, then indeed it's a privilege for them to do it. When we ask our spouses to go to the store, come back with a pair of shoes we purchased, we're not asking them to save us a trip. We're asking them to connect with us in a very deep way. And therefore, when they do this act of service, even something so mundane, they don't see it as an errand. They see it as an opportunity to attach themselves to us to fulfill our deepest desire, which is co to connect with them. In a marriage, it's not about an errand. It's about the connection. Every act of service deepens the connection. When our spouses go out on a stormy night to do something for us, they proclaim how much we mean to them. When they return, we recognize how much they mean to us. The natural result is a deepening, an, an affirmation of our mutual love for each other. My teacher, Rabbi Jacobson, tells a story that happened when he was traveling to Australia. He and his seatmate on the plane, they were enjoying conversations with each other. It's a long flight after all, going from New York all the way to down under. And so they enjoyed each other's company. When they landed, Rabbi Jacobson pulled out the phone and he called his wife to inform her that he finally landed. The seatmate looked around the plane and noticed that most people were on their phone doing, I guess, something similar, calling someone, leaving a message, telling somebody that they landed. And then he commented, that he seems to be the only free person on the plane. Everyone else was tethered to someone, had to call them when they landed. He was the only person not married and he was free to come and go as he pleased. So Rabbi Jacobson looked at him and said, it's true, you don't need to report to anyone 
But in return, no one in the world necessarily cares if you landed. How crushingly lonely, how sad that is, that a person, you know, sees themselves as free, but doesn't realize the reciprocal element to that. When God introduced himself to us at Mount Sinai, God offered a relationship on the most deepest, intimate level with us. God put his happiness in our hands by giving us an actionable way to make him happy. In God's own words, I take pleasure when I ask and my will is done. The commandments are not just the right way to behave. They aren't just acts that perfect ourselves and the environment. They are acts of service that bring us closer. These are entry points through which we connect with Hashem. When Hashem offered us a list of do's and don'ts, we embraced it at once. We didn't see them as burdens because we saw them for what they were the means by which we can have a genuine connection, a relationship with Hashem. And for that, I want to actually read to you a quote from chapter 46 of Tanya, where, it, where the Alter Rebbe writes, God forsook the higher and lower realms, choosing none of them, but us as his people. When Hashem brought us out of Egypt, which was the Torah describes as the obscenity of the earth, the place of spiritual filth, of depravity, of, of impurity. Not through an angel, not through a messenger, but God himself and his glory descended there. As the verse says in the Torah, in Shemos, and I descended to save him from the hand of Egyptians. In order to bring them near to him in true closeness and unity with a genuine soul attachment. These are the words of the Alter Rebbe, just another few lines. He says, like a man who betrothes a wife, this example, so that he should, so that she would be united with him in a perfect bond. As the verse says, and he shall cleave to his wife and there shall be one flesh. Exactly similar, says the Alter Rebbe, and infinitely surpassing it is the union of the divine soul that is engaged in Torah and the commandments with the light of the infinite God. You see, my friends, God is telling us that our behavior matters to Him because we matter to Him. Of all the creatures in the higher and lower realms of the world, we alone matter to God. We alone can make God happy or sad. And this is a unique distinction, and we see it as an immense privilege. It wouldn't matter if God had asked us to chop wood or to dance on our hands. The particulars don't really make a difference that it would make him happy, that's all that matters. And that is why our ancestors accepted the offer without even checking the contract. When it comes to entering a relationship with God and making Hashem happy, no request is too great, no instruction is too difficult. God asked every nation, would you receive my Torah? And everyone refused, except for our ancestors, because they focused on the Torah. We focused on this connection with Hashem, the Anochi, that connection to God. And so my friends, when God introduced himself to us, God selected 10 out of the 613 commandments to present at Sinai. The 10 commandments include prohibitions, we know against murder and theft, right? While we recognize the infinite value of life 
and the horrible crime of God forbid taking a life, why would these belong in the big tent? Are they fundamental principles of our faith? One answer I saw is that the Ten Commandments do not that don't seek to convey the ten most important ideals, ten most important commandments in the Torah, but they lay out the ingredients of a relationship. Right? We discussed before that God wants a personal relationship with every single one of us, and we know that there, you know, there are people who don't enjoy what God enjoys. There are people who are inclined towards murder. God forbid towards what are the other commandments the theft and adultery and dishonesty and God, jealousy this is the nature of the beast god created us with an evil inclination it's part of the nature of who we are god wasn't only talking to the righteous saintly jews god was talking to each and every single one of us every single individual even those inclined to murder to theft to adultery to all those things Everyone was invited into a relationship with Hashem's very, very essence. The lowest individual who might otherwise murder and pillage. Every single person could touch God in this most intimate way. If you set aside that evil inclination, that's part of the nature that God gave us, and decide to make God happy. When this individual curbs his desire to steal or cheat because he wants to make God happy, God is touched at the highest level. Think about that, really? Can, can something so small touch God? Are we heroes for simply not being villains? And the answer is that there is much to be admired about setting aside that villainous behavior, those desires, because it makes God happy. But of course, that is only the first step. At Sinai, God showed us that a second step is possible too. If we continue to associate the thrill of making God happy with the curbing of our sinful desires, then we might over time develop a taste for proper behavior. We will detest, not just avoid revenge, anger, hatred, all those things, because God, whom we love, detests them. We will come to enjoy, not just Engage in forgiveness and peace and love and all those things just because God, whom we love, enjoys them. We will enjoy those very things that God enjoys just as in a loving relationship, I start to enjoy the things that my wife enjoys. And this is the vision that God set forth in the Ten Commandments. It says, I want a loving relationship with every one of you, the highest and the lowest. I will come down to your level, Hashem says enabling everyone to connect. But I will also hope that one day you'll be able to rise to my level. Indeed, this is something the Medrash tells us about what happened. The whole theme of Matan Torah of Shavuos says the Medrash, Shemos Rabbah, this can be compared to a king who decreed that the people of Rome cannot descend to Syria and the people of Syria cannot descend, cannot go up, cannot ascend to Rome. So too says the Medrash, when God created the world, he decreed that the heavens would be his domain and earth would be the human domain. But the Medrash goes on and tells us that when God wished to give the Torah, he rescinded this decree and stated, the lower realms can now ascend to the higher and the higher realms can ascend to the lower. I will be the first. And I think there's a few applications we could take from this teaching. But, you know, chiefly, is that before God gave us the Torah, 
It was only the Abrahams and Sarahs, you know, the people who dwelt in the spiritual domains who were able to connect with God. It was, as the verse says, Hashemayim, Shemayim Hashem. The heavens were the spiritual, heavenly, godly domain. The Oretz Nasanli Bnei Adam, but the earth was for us. The average person was not able to have this kind of relationship as Avraham and Sarah, as the patriarchs and matriarchs had with God. But with the giving of the Torah, God broke this monopoly. God broke the divide between above and below. Even the lowest of the low, people who might otherwise be inclined to murder, would now be invited into the relationship with Hashem. God placed His happiness in the hands of each and every one of us. Even this lowly individual who is otherwise inclined to murder and theft and adultery, etc. By him refraining from this act for God, we're bringing God pleasure. And God would hope that even this individual might eventually develop a higher regard for life as well. And that, my friends, is what the Medrash is telling us, what was achieved at Mount Sinai when God gave us the Torah on Shavuos, bridging that divide, bridging that gap. We'll be right back. And then I want to look at the commandments and see how another way of reading them, not just vertically, but horizontally, comparing them side by side. We'll be back in a moment. High FM, 101.9 megahertz of life. Welcome back to Soul to Soul, right here on 101.9 Chai FM. I'm your host, Rabbi Ari Kiefman, and we've been talking about getting ready for Shavuos, which is coming up next week, please God. So we discussed the idea, the concept of our commitment, our blind faith in our acceptance of the Torah when we said Nasa Venishma, like in a marriage relationship. And we discussed very important points that at Mount Sinai, God offered a personal relationship with each and every single one of us. Even Jews inclined to murder can obtain a relationship with God by abstaining from those immoral and ethical behaviors. Even the lowest Jew could develop a high regard for the Torah. And each of these lessons we can actually see within the tablets themselves. And I would like to now take the opportunity to share with you a wonderful insight, the nature of the very idea of the two tablets. You know, God could have given the Ten Commandments on a single tablet, yet Hashem chose to engrave them on two separate tablets. And why is that? Well, our sages tell us a profound lesson we could learn on the idea, the, the, the shape and the idea that it was two separate tablets. You notice, if you look at the tablets, and any shul usually has the tablets in front depicting what it looked like, the Ten Commandments, that there's the first set of, of commandments on the first tablet addresses deep spiritual and theological concepts, whereas the second group, which are all don'ts, negatives, addresses the base elements of human nature. And just to quickly recap, look at the first side, usually on the right in Hebrew, we have the first set, believe in God, don't worship idols, don't blaspheme, observe the Shabbos and keep it holy. And the fifth one, interestingly, is not like the previous ones between man and God, but is already beginning our relationship with others, yet it's still included on the first side to honor your parents. Now, of course, one wonders, that seems to be more social than ritual. 
Well, of course, there are many answers to that as well. But one of them is that we learn the rules of the Torah from our parents. And our ability to accept what they teach us depends on respecting us respecting them. And secondly, respecting our parents teaches us the art of gratitude altogether. When we learn to acknowledge that our physical benefactors are our parents who brought us into this world, who cared for us, who looked after us, who nurtured us, then we also come to acknowledge and to be grateful towards God, our spiritual benefactor. So those are perhaps some of the reasons why that's included in the first on the right side. On the left side, we have all the negative, well, not all, but five negative, big five. Don't commit murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't be a false witness, don't covet. So by dividing the two sets of commandments into different tablets, God was telling us that he's speaking to every sort of individual, to every kind of Jew. The Jew is spiritually minded, is moved by spirituality. And the Jew who on the face of it has no interest in the deeper theology of the first five commandments, well, to that person, God spoke as well. God spoke to both and told them that he wants a personal relationship as we've been discussing with each and every one of us, with every individual, with every type of Jew. And so we learned that even people inclined to murder can learn to abstain when they realize how happy God would be with their abstention from those unethical behaviors. By lining up the first set of commandments with those of the second set, God proclaimed that the first set can inspire us to keep the second set. Think about it. The top commandment on the right side, I am the Lord your God, is lined up against the commandment, don't murder on the left side. This is not reading it vertically, but horizontally. Because killing a person kills the divine image in which that person was made. So with this juxtaposition, God proclaimed, even if you're inclined to murder, you can overcome that if you realize that I, God, would be happy if you didn't. Now, of course, this is not to suggest that rational reasons to avoid murder, to avoid theft, to avoid any of these negative commandments. Right? Don't, don't just do it because you are swayed rationally not to do so. You know, if you're avoiding it for rational reasons, then we could always contrive rational justifications to make occasional exceptions. But if you avoid these things because God wants you to, then you can never rationalize an exception. In fact, the name of this week's Torah portion that we're going to read this Shabbos, Bichu Kosai. What is Bichu Kosai? Statutes, laws of the Torah that have no rational explanation. Unlike Mishpatim, which are rational laws, which make sense. Don't steal, don't commit adultery. All these are Mishpatim. Unlike Edus, we keep Shabbos because it reminds us that God created the world in six days and rested on the seventh. We celebrate Pesach to commemorate our exodus from Egypt, that God emancipated us from our bondage, from our slavery in that forsaken land. And Shavuos, eating cheesecake to remember that God Almighty gave us the Torah at Mount Sinai. These are all Edus. Chukim, our laws, our portion tells us for example, shatnez or, or ritual purity, kosher. We do it because God said so. And even the laws of mishpatim, like the ones we're discussing now. Don't kill, don't steal, don't commit adultery, etc. Don't be a false witness. Also should be observed because God said so. So if we juxtapose the first commandment and the sixth commandment, 
the two top two, I am Hashem, your God, don't murder. Every person is created in the divine image. Let's go to the second. The second commandment on the right side, don't worship idols. That lined up against commandment number seven, don't commit adultery. It proclaims even if you are inclined to adultery, you could overcome it if you realize that I, Hashem, would be hurt. Our relationship is like a marriage. So if you would betray your marriage to your spouse, I would see it as if you betrayed me, Almighty God. Let's go to the third commandment. Don't take my name in vain. And that's lined up against the eighth, alongside the second tablet. Don't steal. God is saying, I assigned each item to its rightful owners. If you take what isn't yours, it's like taking part of me unjustly. If it's not yours, it's not yours. This is telling us, if you're inclined to theft, God's saying, I trust you won't do it if you realize that I, God, would be hurt by your actions. Because if it wasn't given to you as part of your inheritance, what you are meant to have, and it's not for you. Let's think of commandment number four, how it lines up with commandment number nine. Commandment number four is, Zachar Hashem HaShabbos Lekatshay, right? Observe Shabbos. It's lined up against don't bear false witness. God's saying, I placed you on earth to testify to my existence as its creator. Something you do by working for six days and indeed resting on Shabbos the seventh, as I did when I created the world, God's saying. If you bear false witness against your fellow, you act as if God's not present, which is like bearing false witness against Hashem. Even if you're not, even if you're, you're not going to, uh, even if you're going to commit perjury, God's saying, I believe you won't do it if you realize how happy I, Hashem, would be if you didn't. So again, we see the juxtaposition of them, not just the order as they are vertically, but horizontally. And let's go with the last one, which again, seemingly appears to be out of place. What does honoring your parents have to do on the theological side about our ritual connection to Hashem? And that's lined up on the bottom with number 10. Don't be jealous, don't covet. When you covet, you tell people that you are unsatisfied, you are ungrateful for the things that God gave you, you're jealous of another. Says Hashem, just as we honor our parents out of gratitude to them, Hashem says, I would be immensely pleased if you would be grateful for what I, Hashem, gave you rather than being envious of what others have. So you could see as well that not only are they vertically in their lines, but how they match up horizontally as well. And of course, we learned that even the person who abstains from murder to make God happy can change with time and come to embrace the infinite value of life. And this we see also in the very shape of the tablets. Now, most depictions of the tablets have them with rounded tops, but the Gemara tells us that actually the Luchais were perfectly square. This is in the Gemara Baba Basra, and this explains that since everything is created for a purpose, the luchas, the tablets themselves, had to fill every available space in the ark in which they were placed. If the luchas had been rounded, well, there would have been unused space in the ark, in the Arana Kodesh. So when perfectly smooth and symmetrical square tablets are placed side by side, they appear like they're one. And therefore the message is that the two categories of commandments are not only 
intricately linked to each other, but they are actually symbiotic. The higher reaches down to the lower, and the lower reaches up to the higher. The deep relationship that we have with God motivates even the person inclined to murder to make God happy by avoiding it. And this is the higher reaching down to the lower that we discussed. And the flip side is that those inclined to murder could develop such regard for God that with time, they will prove able to self-transform, to become holy. Once we understand that Torah is not about us, but about our relationship with God, as we discussed a a marital relationship, then we understand the first verse that appears in the Torah after the Ten Commandments. What does it say? Do not make images alongside me. Do not make gods of gold or silver for yourselves. Make for me an altar of earth and sacrifice on it your burned offerings and your peace offerings, the Torah says. The first message after the Ten Commandments is that these commandments are about our relationship with Hashem. Don't make them about you. Don't make them about your gold and silver. The next part shows us how to be happy even if our life is not centered on ourselves narcissistically. Make an altar of earth. Earth represents humility. If we recognize God's infinite greatness and we realize that by surrendering to Hashem, we become part of something greater than ourselves, then we will be able to set our interests aside. When we stop making it all about ourselves, our progress, our achievements don't matter any longer. All that matters is God's happiness. When we reach that point, then we will view our spiritual achievements as something with which to please Hashem rather than something in which we ourselves need to take pride. And at that point, we will fulfill the last part of the instruction. What does it say? Sacrifice your burnt offerings and your peace offerings. That represents our spiritual attainments and perfection on God's altar. Instead of viewing them as our own spiritual achievements, we will see them as something which God can take pride. When we reach the point that life is truly not about ourselves, not about our physical preferences or our, even our own spiritual achievements, then we will have achieved a complete union with God. That relationship is the most intimate, the most wholesome, the most deep. And that is where our efforts touch God on the deepest level. And God will touch us on the deepest level, just as in any deep marital relationship where it's not about ourselves, but about the greater element of the union. So when God revealed himself at Mount Sinai with the flaming fire and the thunderous sound that we're gonna read on Shavuos, he was hoping to inspire even the people to whom the second set of tablets are addressing. They're not left out of the relationship. The first five commandments address them as well. They too can come to revel in the relationship of God to cherish God's gift of the Torah. So my friends, as we discussed, we were were discussing Shavuos is the most important holiday of the year. You have a week and a few days to prepare now. At this point, we hopefully appreciate why with just a week or so left of Shavuos, let's use the time to prepare just as our ancestors prepared back in their day. Let's deepen our relationship with God as God renews his vows to us and we renew our vows to him. Please God, our devotion to God, 
to increase in our depth of our relationship in the coming days will bring blessings to increase infinitely in our lives, materially and spiritually, abundantly in all ways, for health, happiness, joy. And may we bring tremendous nachas to our Father in Heaven. Wishing you all a meaningful, splendid, and beautiful Shabbos. Carpe diem.